Okay, here we go. Did you just hit record? I did. And I, I and this you. one's um su- it's Sunday evening. Click a Sunday evening. Yes. This is going straight out. Wow. I'm gonna hit stop. We're gonna send it. And I'm gonna hit post. Bam. And right. Yeah, because it's a busy it's a busy busy week for me. Um we're gonna be coming back next week again. True. So, you know, it's kind of a lot of oral argument stuff going on. So I gotta I just gotta ship this thing. Push it. I'm gonna push it out and um push it real good. Okay, what was that a salt and pepper song? I don't know, but let's not go down that road because I don't want to do any editing. Okay, no editing, just a blast. It's all in the show, which means no coughing. Eighties or nineties? No, there will be no coughing. Will be no expletives, fleeting or otherwise. (laughs) Oh, fleeting expletives! Those were the days. I remember talking about those with my Supreme Court discussion group back in the day. For sure, they've come up in a few different cases about FCC regulations and um, indecency in broadcast television. And the like. Um, oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That is oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Now, why am I, as if in a fugue state, kind of letting people know about our email address? Joe? I do not know. Because we're going to do a mailbag one of these days. Yeah, it's for not sure. going to be today. We have a little topic here right. we're going to talk about. But, but also, uh, people could uh, go to our Twitter uh, at oral argument. They could yell at us on Twitter like people do. Sure. You yeah, know, we're so at, at me, bro. And we've gotten a little bit of on, on there, and we've gotten, I think there's one other thing we haven't gotten to in the mailbag. In addition to spam, there's some spam in the mailbag. Nice. We could talk about that. We could. If, we, but, if you like. Um, I would rather not encourage But there's a little spamsters. bit more in the mailbag, but I, we haven't set our email address in a long time. So just, if you got some thoughts, send them to us, and we'll do them in, a, in a mailbag show. At um, oral, uh, what is it? Oral argument at gmail.com. That's right. Or is it oral, oral argument, argument podcast? podcast? Oral argument podcast oh, at gmail.com, Joe. Jiminy. Oral <laughs> argument no podcast. I did just. <laughs> oral argument podcast at gmail.com. I think some of the feedback that's come in has to do with the bird scooters, but. So, mm. so I think we need to put that in, in advance. I, I noticed you mm. crowing on Twitter about that a while back. Uh, there, there, is, there have been some interesting studies about injury rates. Uh, of course, those. It, it, the discussion would, of course, have to include automobile injury of rates, course. which are substantial. And pedestrian and all that. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, all all true. So we're not going to get into that now. Good. But because I don't have the energy to bash your head in with a scooter, which is what it will make me want to do. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling <laughs> is mutual. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Joe, the reflexive anger at... Oh my God! I, okay, my blood pressure is going up. Let me let me Excellent. see. Excellent. We got to get you sizzled and sassled. I'm not one. Who, my blood pressure doesn't go up with that kind of thing. Okay. I don't know. I, 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 I'm okay. I like it's okay. You can attack me. I, I just uh, you can it, attack me. It's such a set piece. The scooter thing is now such a set piece that it's. Uh, but you know what? Even more than the lights thing, and and we got another little um, uh, story about. Um, uh, uh, on Twitter, and I'm not ready to do it now. We'll, we'll put, throw this in the mailbag. Okay. We'll, we'll talk. We'll discuss it more about right. um, some regulation, uh, which was saying that, uh, w- which was trying to prohibit people from sharing police locations on yeah, Skype. Yeah, I saw this about ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Did I say Skype? You can see what's on my mind. Like we're recording. I'm immediately like half of my brain is devoted to what's going to go wrong with Skype, <laughs> even though it's just you and me. <laughs> At least half. Right. right. So. So I may just replace random words with Skype throughout the conversation today. Cool. Is that all right? Cool. That's great. If I, especially if I'm thinking of something going wrong. I think that is Skype. <laughs> that could be. That is that is a curse for the 21st century, isn't it? Skype. Skype. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
Uh, so, so there's that to talk about. So I feel like the whole scooter thing, and pe- people know what we're talking about. We're talking about these these dockless scooters, the scooter rental companies like Bird and others who drop off scooters in various locations, and then you can check them out with a phone. And some lo- some people and some um, municipalities have reacted um, negatively toward these. Others have embraced them. And and so we had a debate about this. Joe's, of course, wrong about this. But, but, but for complicated, it's not obvious why Joe is wrong. So we're just going to kind of gloss over it for now. But Joe, of course, thinks that I'm wrong and and is irritated about it. Um, what is great about this, though? What you're, people, I'm not irritated about any of it. Well, you you yeah, just said you, I'm irritated. You're a little I, irritated. We have a, we have a fun uh, and hilarious disagreement. Yes, but what's, what's more fun about the scooter thing than the, our original, you know, so the show is called Oral Argument. Yeah. So... Every now and then we got to find something really to argue about, yeah, which doesn't happen that often. It does, in not, truth. Th- not that often, um, which is surprising, you know, given who we both are. Okay, I mean, there's a lot to argue with. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, and the world is a rich and I, interesting place. So, so the original argument was about whether to flash your lights uh, if you if you pass a a cop on the side of the road yeah. to warn right. oncoming. Uh, uh, traffic that, hey, there's a cop and, you know, you, you might get a $200 ticket if you, if you don't put on the brakes. And we, we talk about the ethics of it and everything. We, we would ask guests. Remember that? We sure, would yeah. We, and we'd get their views on it. Yeah, this was, a, this was a bit. Usually revealing that the guest had never listened to a single episode of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Quite true. Although that was not why we asked, but. <laughs> um, no, no, that's, that was not a test. We, we don't test our guests that way. What's funny is that all the conversations we had about uh, flashing your lights and about uh, those speed traps did not make me any more attuned in my actual life to actually f- flashing my lights at people if I had seen a speed trap. I think it made me more self-conscious about it. Like, I, I don't recall having done it very much at all before yeah. we ever started talking about it. I still don't recall doing it very much, even mm-hmm. though I have passed many a police car waiting yeah. for people. Um, like on trips up and uh, back and forth to my sister's place up north, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a surprising finding. I think there, I think the findings are everywhere that that um, that thinking about ethics and how to be a good person doesn't necessarily turn you into one. Yeah, because right. a, a bunch of it is about what's what is the reflexive and easy behavior. Mm-hmm. And when I'm driving along and I'm by myself and I'm trying to focus on driving well and I, I just don't think, oh yes, I need to do this Do you this focus on driving well? Is that something you I mean, you when do? I'm trying to like minimize distractions and, mm-hmm. you know, want to watch what I'm doing and where are the other cars and it's a constant, you know, you're not to, driving takes a lot of focus, at least for me. Huh. So, uh, do you ever like leave somewhere and arrive somewhere else and then say, huh, what happened? How yeah, did so I get here? I, I have had moments like that and I find them very disturbing. <laughs> it terrifies you, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't like it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's the thing. I just, you know, I'm sure I was paying attention at the time. What I don't remember is paying attention, but I know that I did pay attention. At least well enough to have gotten there in one piece for sure. Yeah. The, the evidence is right there in front of you. You're there. So well, anyway, we used to have this debate. I feel like the scooter debate is more, there's more blood in it. Definitely. It's, it's, a, it's an angrier debate. It's, um, yes. Although given how low the baseline was, only the (laughs) slightest little smidgen of anger is going to make it an angrier debate. Yeah. Um, I think there is, we're not going to redo the debate and you can tell because we keep saying we're not going to redo it. That's how you know, how you know that we're not going to redo the debate is that we have said it several times. Yes. Right. And which is very reassuring um, to me and to listeners. I, I will simply add because people want to know what's going to happen in the show. Joe. Now that you've characterized it with a little more as having a little more anger, which is true, um, <laughs> it, it's 
what I think it uh, gets a little more of into the mix is is um, a speculation about about people's attitudes about things hmm. and speculation about how they're hoping people react or might react or et cetera. And so there's a there's sort of a lot more moving pieces to the scooter thing than to the speed trap thing. Right. Um, it's more fun. Hmm. I I'm still waiting though for because mo- most of your arguments have been I think reasonable but misguided. Mm. Uh, on the on the dockless scooter issue, so uh, so things could be much worse for me. <laughs> well, well, I'm still waiting for something as blatantly ridiculous as your claim that you can't see lights during the day. <laughs> I think that was peak. <laughs> that was peak speed trap argument. I think I expressed confusion about <laughs> <laughs> whether I could see lights, I, and I stand by the assertion that it, they're not as easy to see during the day. Because there's just less contrast. I, I've, you know, we've always said the show is one of these um, – is basically a long, long, long <laughs> narrative about uh, – which is all for you, like getting to know, getting to know Joe, right? And, yes, and this it's has been – you, know, you, the trailer you is enormous be... in-kind benefits in therapeutic hours that I didn't need to spend on someone else's therapy. So um, I, I appreciate that. Although you really should have been compensated. But <laughs> – but I do think that the, the, the absolute peak of that, of that period was, <laughs> was not just that claim, but that you went and you tested it in a parking I garage. I did. In a, in a darkened parking garage during yeah. the night. Which is... As opposed to like, you know, outside mm-hmm. and then in a garage where it's, there, it is dimmer for sure. But I think the, the meta narrative here is, is how – and this is you too being terrified after realizing you don't recall uh, discrete elements of the drive between A and B. Um, your generalized um, disgust. I, ooh, I think we can. I think we can pull in dis- a disgust reaction to really to what you perceive as Silicon Valley style tech companies dumping um, kind of like uh, libertarian garbage around cities in the form of these dockless scooters. Um, I'm, I'm using emotion words there. I'm not using yep. those analytically. Right. So I what I'm getting here is. Joe's view of kind of the precariousness, like your, your your focus on like details of things, like there's a sense that like it could all go bad at any moment. Um, mm. it, everything it takes my attention to keep this thing on the rail. Mm. I don't know. Do you get do you get scared when when you fly and you can't see the pilot? <laughs> no, I well, yes because you trust in expertise. You trust in expertise. I I, I do have a, a respect for expertise mm-hmm. and i think that has as much as anything to do with my uh, my my effort to try to rely on and and benefit from uh, reciprocity so i i hope other people respect my expertise the fact Ooh. that i hope that yeah i think makes me sensitive to the idea that there's uh, there are the there are expertises of others that i can respect Ooh, this reciprocality idea and uh so you know, yeah. yeah, I do trust, uh, respect, uh, expertise. Well, it reminds me. So, uh, you know, since the conversation, you know, we were going to have this quick conversation about this um, article by the late Judge Wald. Yes. Um, and it's fantastic. We're going to talk about it. I feel like we ought to shake loose casual listeners. Mm. And we, we've been trying to do that, apparently. Yeah, I think apparently. it's worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me take one more one more go at it, though. So I finally did get these progressive lenses. Oh, 
So you, are those new glasses? Health, these are new glasses over here, oh. um, as the listener plainly can see. So do they look a little wide? They do. do they seem. Uh, they seem to me. I think a little bit taller, bottom to top. Is that so? Probably because they have some. Yes, I mean my other ones were I think narrower, but okay. these. Um, so so progressive. They're like bifocals, but there's a blend in it, yeah. right? There's some. Um, it's it's like you know I've been watching a little Bob Ross to try well, to calm I hope down they work recently. Out for you. So it's like it's like you know Bob Ross like blended the you yeah. know the different things. I hope and, they work out. But I remember we did, we talked about this, and you were convinced that I needed glasses which were specifically tailored for my eyes, and I was trying to talk about how the near vision was either i needed no correction or just some magnification so re- re- reading glasses off the shelf with the right magn- then it, but anyway like i detected in there like this idea that you should just that i should just go from you joe's position is you should just go see an eye doctor and let them do their expert thing to give you glasses that are uh that that are tuned to your expertly determined problem and yes, that's kind of the beginning and end of it. For yes, you. and that could include the fact that, um, uh, first of all, I love your flair for dramatic overstatement. It's, it's quite <laughs> exciting. Second, um, we've uh, been we've been off for two weeks. I feel like we need a little exclamation points yeah, here you're, and there, you scattered are throughout. Some, you are putting sizzle on the steak, my friend. <laughs> Second, I don't I don't eat steak. So, fair enough. Sizzle on the Impossible Burger. Uh, mm. y- you second. Um, you know, you've got you've got a range of options, yeah. right? The the expertise could involve uh, someone who's expert in um, ophthalmology and optometry telling you, you know what, for you, given this, given your the condition of your eyes, um, in order to get help reading, buying a pair of magnification reading glasses at CVS will do you just fine, right? That, that could easily have been that person's judgment. So you got a range of things, right? You can go there and get from an eye care professional, get some counsel and advice about what to do. Mm-hmm. You can use your own, of course, experience, which isn't expert, but is tailored to you in a way that almost nothing else could be, right? I, in, I, object, to, I, I object to your conclusion that it is not expert, but go ahead. It, it's not expert in eye care. Go ahead. Um, uh, but it's rich experientially, and so you could rely on that. <laughs> um, and, and of course, it also includes things you've heard from people, experiences you've heard others recount of things they've done successfully. My God, I'm loving this. Keep going. Um, or third, you could just you know fling crap around at a dartboard and you know <laughs> do what it says, right? Magic eight ball. Do I need reading glasses? You know, mm-hmm. ask again later. I mean, you so you got a range of things to do. So as um, you know, I did not actually need reading glasses. What I needed was. Uh, it, it was it was getting harder and harder to read when I had my um, my distance correction lenses on. Like I, you know, I'm n- farsighted. It's far farsighted, right? No, nearsighted. Nearsighted. That it, near it refers to the thing you can do well, right? So I'm nearsighted, meaning that like I need you glasses need to, to correct my distance away, vision, right? Uh, I needed basically no correction for close up. Sure. And uh, so I would constantly like flip my glasses up to read, and it got to the point where I couldn't really. Even for like, you know, it was uncomfortable even for short periods to kind of glance down with my glasses on. So I basically needed something where there was no correction below. And, Groovy. Um, so the when I went to get advice about this, um, at, at, per your suggestion, Joe, hmm. um, the eye doctor, it was an optometrist, op- ophthalmologist. I know, I'm not going to get into the, which one this one, this particular eye care person was, but because it, it doesn't matter for this for this purpose, it doesn't matter. Um, so let me talk about it some more. <laughs> uh, 
her advice was like, you know, you, you probably these progressive lenses is kind of what you would need in order not to take them off like that. But but you probably wouldn't like them and you don't really you know, you don't really need them. And, you know, so it was kind of like, yes, there any kind of glasses are going to have a distance correction and a close correction. They're going to blend it somehow. I mean, you know, so there's no real reason to do it unless it's like really bothering you. And the problem with you've, you've worn progressive lenses before. I don't know what you mean. Well, these lenses that go, you know, you've worn glasses that correct both at the same time. I did try progressive lenses at one point and they were a complete failure for me. But <laughs> How long did you try them? Um, several weeks. Really? Yeah. So you really, maybe? You really gave it a try. Yeah. Total failure. When I first put them on, and I know this is, this is my listener's tune into the show. Yeah, Wait, this we're is Health Corner, we're, dude. We're going to change it to two old dudes talking about things breaking. That's not a bad title for a podcast, is Love it? Love it. Um, it was weird. I thought for I thought it was some. I thought they were someone else's glasses. That's what mm. I thought. Mm. Um, and of course they you turn, were. They were the new. Used you glasses. turn your head from side to side, and everything kind of you know the perspective distorts. And I was like totally unprepared for just how weird they would be. But I have to say, I, I kept at it. Good. Um, I kept at it, and. I, I kept telling my wife that, you know, I, I may have a seizure from this. You know, it may basically, um, uh, you know, cause my brain to uh, shut down. How long have you been wearing them? Uh, a couple weeks. Oh, great. And and they work. I'm I mean, delighted I, to hear. My, my brain is now, I turn side to side. You can hear me turning side to side, I think, in the microphone. Yeah. And, and it doesn't distort. You've been, you have habituated your visual system to successfully process information yeah. through those glasses i kind of don't like the sound of that though that i'm rewiring my neurons only yeah, i think you might of, be yeah but you know i just did because you said that and i heard it and now i remember it so mm. boom something's happened right, right. Mm. always changing joe congrats though <laughs> and the best part of the story of course came very early which is that you went, <laughs> i think it came when we first said hello <laughs> which is that you went to see an eye care professional uh yes i did so you can be you can either in actuality or as a pose uh, be as contemptuous of expertise. Oh, I'm not at all as you like to be. expertise. I'm not contemptuous. But, um, you know, I think it's a great thing. Actually, many times, has of course expertise can cultivate its own blind spots, which is a set, you know, metaphorical, um, which is a separate issue. Uh, now I think I'm gonna have to go to the doctor about about my heart rate. Why? What's happening talking, to that? Well, I mean, you know, I exercise, right? And I go to the gym mm-hmm. like three times a week or four times a week or something like that. So I, I'm used to running and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now I've got this little heart rate monitor thing on my wrist. And um, I've always known my heart is fast. Oh. You know, my, my resting heart rate is fast. But also when I exercise, it's fast. Okay. But my maximum heart rate, like when I really get going, and I'm 46 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm a 46-year-old man, Joe. Okay. And it's probably, so it looks like it's probably around 200 for my maximum heart rate. Wow. And when I'm just running regularly, it's like routinely like 180 or so. Hmm. And I think it's supposed to be less than that for a person my age. Okay. And of course, you know, what I I Google, basically, you know, here's my heart rate. Am I going to die? I just type all that out. Sure, sure. And um, and I I don't know. Maybe there is some data out there. Okay. I think that's enough. Are you ready to move on to Health Corner? Yeah. Let's let's zip up Health Corner. And uh, so you're the one who wanted to talk about this paper by Judge Wald. That's true. I had uh, had you heard, had you read it before, or what was I'd the... seen reference to it a few times before because of things I've been working on in my in my research, and I so was looking for an occasion to read it. Uh, this was maybe as early as last spring. Wow. Um, and 
Uh, it's actually one of a few pieces that are gathered together in this particular issue of the University of Chicago Law Review in 1995. It's mm-hmm. there's this uh, thing of hers. Uh, Judge Posner has a piece in there. Mother Nussbaum has a piece in there. Uh, someone else has a piece in there. Uh, and I so it's seen reference to it a few times. I've been meaning to read it. And I then I had heard recently that she died. Yeah. Uh, and I think she was 90 years old. That brought back. She's a very well-loved, well-known judge. Well, um, very well-regarded. With whose work, like, I've, I've read her opinions before, like, I'm sure, but, like, I don't know a lot about her. Um, I didn't clerk on the D.C. circuit. Um, Nor did I. Uh, and, yeah. But I, I did. The other fun thing is, and, and I recalled um, when she died, that I had actually seen her on the Washington, D.C. Metro one day. I was in, riding the Metro mm-hmm. to go to work, and I... I don't know how I knew what she looked like, but I did. And I happened to see her. Are you recounting? This... It sounds like you're recounting a dream. Like, you know, I'd never met her, but somehow I knew her. Like, <laughs> I, how did I'd, you know what she, how did you know what she looked I'd like? Seen, I'd seen newspaper stories or newspaper reports, or maybe I'd seen her on C-SPAN or something like that. Okay. But anyway, but I was quite certain that it was her because I'd know I okay. could recognize her. Um, and uh, and she was on the, the metro train. She was going to work. And I just thought that was neat. And I remembered that finally the other day. Wait, is that the end of the story? Yeah. <laughs> did I mean, you go? I didn't did say, you, you don't want to be <laughs> creepy. I'm not oh going to say anything to her. This is the worst. Like another time when I lived in Washington, I saw like I was at a movie and Newt Gingrich was a few seats away at the movie theater, eating, of course, the largest bag of popcorn that they sold at the theater. No. Um, now, <laughs> you know, you have these stories in Washington, D.C. That, so let me tell you about a story, Joe. Okay. A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's so a, you <laughs> think. So you would like everyone to believe. What you're, you have is an anecdote. You are trapped in a... In, in Don't a, try to spin this as some kind of postmodern subway story. Mm. What you told is the beginning of a story. So you're, I'm on a subway, and there's okay. Judge Wald. And then what Dear happened, listener. Joe? Dear oh, then I went to work. Dear listener. <laughs> I actually mentioned that memory of her in the context of a larger story we were telling about how I came to suggest okay. that we read okay. this paper together. So I'm going to back off. I'm it was, back in off. fact, a story. This was a part of a story. I had that memory. Uh, so very much like the show, very much like this whole series, right? It is about, you know, it is one small piece <laughs> of the larger story of how your mind works. I, okay. Right? Fair enough. <laughs> So go ahead, go ahead. Let's hear the rest of it. So she died. Yeah. I heard she died. I was sad. I Mm -hmm. remembered seeing her on the subway and I remembered wanting to read this paper. So I thought, hey, let's read the papers. We like to talk about papers with authors Mm -hmm. and she is not here, but uh, we have the paper. We can read the paper. We talk about the paper. As little, it's like, as much it's as like a like. return to the kind of show that we did um, early on. There were some early episodes we did when we, we just did a just you and like me show that was or... not a mailbag. It was we yeah. had a certain topic in mind, right. and uh, so what attracted you to this particular paper? What is the paper, and why? Why did why did you want to talk about it with me? Well, I wanted to talk about it because she's uh, when she wrote it in 1995, she had been on the DC circuit for some years. Yeah. Had been a chief judge at one point. Of course, that's what happens in the progression of things. If you serve a certain amount of time and you could become the chief judge. And, uh, and so I knew that she was a very experienced judge. She had a great reputation. And so if she's going to write about how judges do their craft of writing opinions, which is what it's about, um, 
I don't recall the title anymore, uh, unfortunately. I think it's um, called Rhetoric and Results. That's it. The Results of Rhetoric or the Rhetoric of Results or both or something like that. Anyway, the, it's actually not what, what caught my eye actually is the first Roman numeral heading, Why We Write. Yeah. No, and, that's, yeah. and that I had always thought of it in, as the title. Mm-hmm. Why? And that's a fat, and to me, that is a very interesting thing to hear judges talk about. So, you know, we'll talk about this because it's, it's a fascinating, it's almost like a tour through a lot of the elements of judicial writing at that time and probably still. It, it captures, um, so, you know, it goes over like the use of dicta, the formulation of rules and standards, uh, distinguishing when, precedents. When you, when you dissent, when you concur, the mm -hmm. nature of what, what you write when you do that, like how you um, um, shape um, rulings and how you have to kind of cut the best stuff in order to get a majority. So it kind of goes through right. all of it's like a tour through. And a colleg the collegiality right. experience and the uh, effects that that has, having to write to get, gather together more than one person as opposed to dissenting, which you can do on your own and the sort of liberating feeling that that has. And so all kinds of fun and interesting reflections on judging as a craft. Well, so one of the things I was wondering when I read this, because it did, I think it was written seven years before I clerked and it was, it reminded me a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, of what it felt like to practice and it was in right in the middle of the time I was clerked, 1995. And so, so what I'm wondering is, is the piece a marker of a certain um, set of professional norms around a certain decade or two in other words or is it about the nature of judicial decision making and the uh, incentives influences on constraints on anybody who judges within a system relatively similar to ours um, because i do think you know she talks about natural language at one point in the shift to natural language you know self-consciously mm -hmm. noting a certain change yep. in judicial tone so so she's aware that at least some of what she's talking about is grounded in a certain time and place and you know it, it is in the um is somewhere on the wave of a certain change in in judicial habit but i'm wondering about the piece in general did you find that it speaks to something universal and and i let me just filibuster a little bit more uh because like i i asked the question because i know your interest in in judicial decisions uh, these days is about like how how they cite to one another and what their citation to one another, their practice of um that there's something distinctive about um judicial writings because they are self-consciously part of a network of writings mm -hmm. right and so it's not as though it's not um it's not like writing a novel um, everyone knows that anyway, but but it, one sense in which it's not like writing a novel is, is because it is well known to be part of a network. You have to branch out to stuff which has come before and write with an expectation of being branched to by right. by future opinions. And I know that's like super interesting to you um, because you're interested in the, how this like non-semantic content of law tells us about how, helps us understand some semantic things, right? And um, uh, Anyway, yeah, it, so I, I thought it was probably interesting to you for that reason. But. It, it is, and I think it's, I don't know that there are, I don't know that it is non-semantic. Um, oh, fair point. But the... Uh, the point you just made, because the listeners made it, we did a show with Mike Madison talking about some of these issues a while back, about one of your one of your papers, not, yes. not all of them. But, but the point you just made is that... Um, I was trying to say a citation, kind of like a hyperlink, is not itself a unit of meaning, and you're objecting to that by saying, "Hey, it is. It is meaning. Like when you, when you cite something, it has meaning to it." And point taken. I just wanted yeah. To clarify. Within our within uh, you know law as a practice, um, right? It, it has a meaning. Uh, the um, 
so it, it was interesting to me in that respect. I think, uh, m- you know, most of what I've been working on in, in, in my research is, it, is apex courts. And the mm-hmm. D.C. Circuit is not an apex court. It's an intermediate appellate court. So it's, it's a collegial court. It's a, it's a appellate court. And, all, uh, and, and the Anglo-American tradition appellate courts are collegial uh, as opposed to one judge making a decision on his or her own as a trial judge, in, which is what the federal system is like. So it's collegial, but it's not, a, the, it's not an apex court. It, it isn't routinely revisiting its own precedents. And it doesn't have, in a way, a, always the ability to do that um, in any given case. Although part of part of the article, I mean, does refer to the, the truth of the matter that for practical purposes, for almost all cases, for, for for virtually all cases, for almost all rounding you might do, it is the court of final resort. Yes, I, I think that's, um, it, she does make the point. It's an important pragmatic point. And the law of um, the circuit is kind of a precedent conserving, you know, so it, almost it is, all the time, yeah. It is nevertheless, uh, it, it, Another pragmatic point to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, um, intermediate appellate courts in the American system uh, sit in panels of fewer than all the judges, uh, and they're bound by, as you were just referencing, I think, they're bound by prior panel opinions um, that are not from them. Uh, so that has a vertical feel. Although some, some circuits vary on that. I I think I've said this before in the show, and and it was I think this was true when I clerked. I don't know what the current practice is, but I believe it at that time at least the Seventh Circuit, I think it was the Seventh, was uh, um, had a rule that it was not that you, a new panel was not bound by an old panel. You're only bound by an in banc. That, but but I don't know for sure. So, so I could Seventh be totally Circuit experienced folk listeners or argument know. podcast at um, gmail dot com. I, I I frankly would find that shocking if that were the case, mm-hmm. but it might be the case. Uh, and I'd be interested to know because it sounds quite wrongheaded to me. But uh, so I'd be be interested to know. Well, it would, um, be, it would be an interesting way to force an in banc on issues which should go in banc. Because in the same way that the Supreme Court takes up circuit splits, right? You have an intra circuit split, which would go to basically the apex court in that circuit, yeah. which is the in bank. So there's a certain kind of both formalistic and like. Um, uh, um, Kind of, there's another kind of rationale for that. But. And uh, so, but that, that's the critical distinction is between apex courts and intermediate courts and where intermediate courts have more of a, a pressure from above using a sort of vertical metaphor. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, and the, the bank procedure up for sitting as a whole court and undoing something, right, which is the way that court can, with respect to itself, make itself more like the Supreme Court where it can overrule a prior thing. Um, one way to think about the Supreme Court is it sits as a whole court in every case. And, and so and, in every yeah. case, it is deciding everything it wants to decide, including what things not to revisit in that case. Yeah. And just in case there are listeners who don't know, in all the circuit courts, um, this, this is the intermediate court of appeal in the United States federal system. Uh, an appeal is heard by a three judge panel. So three judges, sometimes one of those three judges is um, sitting by des- designation. They might be a, a federal trial court judge or sure. a federal district court judge who's sitting by or even uh, visiting from another circuit. I think there was a recent paper about this. About, yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, the in-bank in many circuits, maybe all but one, but I'm, again, I'm not sure about this. Um, all, all the judges, all the active judges will sit on the in-bank um, and so it's kind of a whole court proceeding, but the Ninth Circuit doesn't. In the Ninth Circuit, I think the in bank is like a super panel. It's just more judges. 
But I don't know the rules for yeah. that. So again, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com <laughs> or just yell at us on Twitter. Right. But I'm just trying to capture some generalities here. And her reflections on what it was like to be a DC circuit judge is therefore um, a, a fun way to for me to broaden what I've been reading with my focus on apex courts, Ooh, yeah. Supreme Courts uh, instead. So there's certainly a different like political economy and yeah. collegiality and right. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, some of what she says was probably not just unique to her time period, but unique to her court at her time period in the sense that uh, I think the D.C. Circuit has at various points in time been famously riven by strife and inter um, sort of inter philosophy, um, you know, because because it hears a lot of regulatory matters. So the whole debate over the regulatory state. A lot of those political debates end up in the D.C. Circuit. Yeah, and the D.C. Circuit has a perception of being sort of a junior varsity training ground for the Supreme Court. So presidents have been putting judges on the D.C. Circuit with an eye toward perhaps elevating them at some point to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Uh, and so you got with the R's and the D's over time and cycle. Wasn't the Sixth got, Circuit hmm? dis- wasn't the Sixth Circuit dysfunctional at some point? It is true. The Sixth Circuit has been a site of massive dysfunction over the last 30 years uh, with routine refusal to fill seats. So there have been many empty seats on that court. There have been long periods where that's been the case. This is disagreements among Democratic senators and Republican presidents principally, although I don't think exclusively. Um, so, yes, the Sixth Circuit has been extremely There's troubled. a lot of intra-court But the trouble has been about personnel and staffing as much as it's been. The D.C. Circuit sort of like they're there, but they're they, – there have been periods where they've been fighting with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think she was referencing some of those periods where you sort of there was a conservative camp and a liberal camp. Yeah, I and, think in many circuit courts, right, The if you're not hearing a lot of like administrative law matters, things coming up with involving federal government action through agencies, um, then maybe you're hearing a lot of criminal cases, maybe some, um, some diversity cases. There are going to be just a lot of cases that come up to you where you can all agree despite your theoretical commitments toward the New Deal, for example, right? right? right. It just seems on the D.C. Circuit those wounds keep getting abraded again and again and again yeah. would be my guess. But like, you know. Yeah, I think that's true. And the and not just the administrative state stuff, but, you know, I think m- plenty of uh, things with constitutional overtones can find their way to that court in, in, a, in a way that I think is more intense. Uh, mm-hmm. And you also know that in that court, my impression is, well, although again, like you, I did not clerk there, um, that y- you sort of know that uh, you're that you're going to see this thing again, right? You're doing it day in and day out. These issues, it's here today because it was here last month, and it's going to be here next month. Yeah. And so every little bit of ground you give, you're giving not just in this case, but in all future cases. And so it's. You think there's more of those issues? I mean, there was some of that when I was a clerk on, you know, on on our court. There are, as you know, I mean, there are kind of issues that keep coming up in federal law, including like immigration law. And you know that what's said in this case is going to be a thing in another case. So a lot of the dynamics she talks about are not unique to the D.C. Circuit. But I guess what you're saying is that is that there are just more of those because of the nature of the issues involved. Um, The that that. Yeah, the the. There are more of them that are very high profile administrative law and constitutional overtone, right? It's true that you could go to a different circuit and, you know, at a given point in time, for example, uh, if you have 
um, at the Seventh Circuit, a point in time where you've got Richard Posner, Frank Easterbrook, and Diane Wood, all of whom are three antitrust superstars, right? The antitrust issues in the Seventh Circuit have 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 always been a little bit higher profile uh, in the last, since the mid seventies. Um, but but when the three of them are there in the recent past, Judge Posner has since retired. But with the three of them there, I mean that is just a shoot out the lights high wattage uh, antitrust court. And so, of course, they're going to be more intense, and they're going to know that if the issue comes up again, they're going to be at it again. And uh, and what the, how they resolve it will have some influence because other people will perceive them the way that you just did. Yeah, I mean, it's go it it is going to be of greater influence. Thank you, Darcy. Thanks, Darcy. She stopped snoring at least. I don't know if the mics pick up her snoring, but <laughs> as she's gotten older, there's there's more snoring and less um, mm. shaking. I think. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the 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 paper. Yeah, I thought we were, but yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, just let's kind of go through it because uh, what? Or I don't know if there were particular things you wanted to talk about. I highlighted a few things which I thought were kind of interesting. But did you have? Um, larger points. Did you have an outline for this thing, Joe? I mean, I, I, I don't. Neither of those. I don't have true. a script in front of me. I, I don't feel prepared. Uh, like you, I, do you have bullet points? I do not have bullet points. I read it yesterday. I glanced at it again today to kind of refresh my recollection. But you know, I'm just trying to roll with the flow here. So one of the first observations that she makes in in the paper is how judges are concerned with doctrine rather more so than with individual cases. And I don't know that that's necessarily true at the trial court level. Um, it's certainly not true at the Supreme court level where the, I think they are very kind of, um, committed to an idea that they are there to kind of guide federal law rather than to do justice in individual cases. Although, you know, there are times, right. There are times when, when that is, when that kind of assumption is reversed. But but here she says, uh, I got this one thing highlighted. On the whole, uh, this is about jurisprudential politics, politics. On the whole, judges are more absorbed in doctrine than in individual cases. They like to see their favorite doctrinal flowers grow and flourish, and conversely, they rejoice when doctrinal weeds or aberrant strains wither and die. Thus, much bargaining goes on among judges about the grounds for a decision. So a case comes up. You know, this is kind of like um, an agenda control point, right? Mm. That... Uh, you know, one of the constraints on judicial powers, they don't get to, they don't get to kind of choose their own agenda. They take the cases in front of them. They resolve the cases on grounds which are applicable, et cetera. But part of the point here is that they're kind of, oftentimes there are kind of a lot of grounds to resolve a case. And so yeah. if you want to ignore one, there's usually another way to do it. And different people see cases a different way. And so there's bargaining that occurs. And a lot of that bargaining is let's, let's avoid this issue. Let's avoid saying anything about this for now. Because I don't like that area, you know, I don't want to make new law on it, at least with this panel. I mean, you know how it goes. I mean, what did you think of that? True, false? Well, it sounded quite uh, true to me based on what I think things I saw when I was a law clerk on an appellate court. And my sense of the way things look and teaching, like just, you know, when we're deciding, uh, when we're pulling together materials to teach, right, and we're thinking about what cases we would teach yeah. with and why. And there are many cases that are in a doctrinal area that, that you're interested in exploring, but they're not a good teaching vehicle because it's a case where that the issue got dodged precisely because 
there was some other way. I say dodged as if that's a bit pejorative. I, the the well, issue she seems was to, not. She seems to say that. Yeah, and, well, and the I'm, issue is not squarely joined because there was a, another way to resolve yeah. the case. And I suppose for those people at that time, that seemed like the more prudent thing to do. The the thing is, they had the choice in a sense. Yeah, right? one of the most famous examples, I think, is the Pledge of Allegiance case. Uh, was it Newdow? Mm. Right where yeah, it's it's a pretty squarely like it's still an issue. Like there's the establishment clause claim is difficult and real, and yet the Supreme Court has no interest in deciding that on the merits. Right, and 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 in a court where you can uh, decide whether to decide, yeah, of course they have a whole nother layer of issues to think about and work through. In the DC Circuit, they have they have an additional weapon to dodge, but they can't always use it. True, right? Um, and because they've got an appellate docket as well as a cert docket, and also as well. well and if you don't take it, the the appellate ruling holds. So from the Ninth Circuit, like, <laughs> right? So <laughs> right. So you you've got to you, if you're if you're not willing to leave the thing in place, exactly. But you're also not willing to having granted it to to take it out of place. You're not willing to sort of grasp the nettle and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, then yeah, you've got these other th- things to fall back on. It's just in the DC circuit or, or the second circuit or whatever of for, for many, many issues, uh, although I suppose not for all, um, they are, uh, dealing with appeals as of right. So if th- it's there because of someone wants to appeal it. And, and so maybe there's more pressure in a way to develop different ways of disposing of a case other than, on the merits for all the issues it raises on the merits. And so that's a way of, of kind of pruning to kind of grow doctrine in areas where you want to grow it and not grow it in areas where you don't want to grow it. She mentions in here that, that there's even a power against the Supreme Court because you can decide what cases to cite. And and she mentions not citing certain cases like Korma, she mentions Korematsu, right. which at that time was still good law. And People are just saying now it's finally been overruled, but I, I think it was actually overruled in dicta in that case. This is the travel ban case. <laughs> right. Right. It wasn't necessary. So it's not clear to me that it's been overruled. Yeah. Um, plainly terrible law. It's also um, not clear what it means to say it's been overruled. I mean, yeah. it, the, the um, I'm going to do a paper at some point called uh, – and I'm going to say the title now. So I'm taking the title. Okay. I'm making a claim. You can't do this to trademark law, but I'm going to do it uh, here for my title. It's going to be called Canon, Anti-Canon, and Network. And it's hmm. it's about the fact that the what makes a case anti-canonical is not that uh, it's not that you can't talk about it. In fact, it's the opposite, right? So, can the canon and the anti-canon are both very present and very alive to conversation? Yeah, Dred Scott. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's it is the only thing I object to here, Joe, is as with um, antitrust. I think you need to say anti-canon because <laughs> anti-canon. Like that's could come before the canon. Fair enough. Right. So this is like maybe people could people could think you're talking about old important English cases. Mm. And this caveat of yours, uh, it's we very can make valuable. It, we can make it part of it is, and we make part of every time <laughs> every time I uh, utter a word. That I think this is the first time we've had this A-N-T-I. argument on the show, though. That that is true, although okay. not in life. And uh, <laughs> uh, the her point that there are the, sort of the unsightables. Right, that there are these yeah. sort of pariah. I think the word she uses is pariah. Um, that these there are these pariah cases. That, yes, you're exactly right. That you really Good shouldn't memory. say. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that it is. That's not what makes something anti-canonical. It is precisely that it is talked about, actively talked about as a terrible thing by name. 
right? Right. That's what makes it anti-canonical. Ah, so it's almost like you've got like a bunch of like magnets and, and some of them have positive poles and some of them have, you know, or they all have positive and negative poles. This is a terrible analogy. Um, right. But but basically, you have some 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 repellers and some uh, attractors, yeah. and you arrange an opinion is an arrangement of those things which pushes you toward a certain area. But there are some things you just don't use at all, and so she, you think she should make an additional distinction between pariahs, right. the things that you include in the opinion to show how. But her point is from the point of view of an intermediate court, right? Right, where 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 you can't say that something which hasn't been overruled is part of the anti-canon, Correct. right? right. Um, but what you can do is give it, pay it no heed, pay it no mind, right. not mention Alternatively, it. Alternatively, and I think she describes this as well, you can talk about it and, and make a plea for it to be removed, uh, which I'm very familiar with in terms of the, the that happened several times uh, in um, uh, the law of antitrust, or as you like to say, antitrust, uh, in the course of the 70s and 80s, yeah. where the the... The court had decided. The Supreme Court had decided a bunch of cases using uh, the illegality per se approach, and the Seventh Circuit, especially, although not only them, uh, w- were convinced that this made no sense anymore, and that they really should be using a full rule of reason analysis. And so, th- what they would do, and this is a classic form for an intermediate appellate court. You say, hey, I'm going to start listening again. You know, I fell asleep there for a second, but okay. We, we, <laughs> we you know, here's I'm just this, joking. Here's the this Supreme, is a fascinating show. Here's. <laughs> Here's a Supreme Court case. Uh, it requires us to decide this case this way. Yeah. Uh, we think this is terrible, dumb, wrong. It shouldn't happen. We are doing it. It's our duty to do it. Only a higher court can prevent it. We hope that happens. Period. She discusses this too the, in the paper right. about the ways to talk about precedent. Um, and th- there's, a, there's a part of this, and it comes later in the paper, where she, although she doesn't cite Llewellyn, you know, there's, there's a... Um, Basically, she reproduces in kind of concrete D.C. circuit form Llewellyn's observation about um, uh, strict and loose precedent, mm-hmm. right? That there are yeah. judges who will read a case um, and then take the principles or kind of take the headlines from the case and then use them for all they're worth. Right. You know, you <laughs> like you find a line in a case that says you can't profit from your own crime. And then suddenly that is a dis- that's a rule that can dispose of a future case. But then there are, some some use a stricter form of interpretation where rather than a kind of a meat cleaver, you use a scalpel right. and you kind of say, well, really, that was about this. And, and that case involved these facts. And so the principle really is this much narrower thing. Yes. And so he describes a process of kind of law maintaining some consistency, but also changing through the alternative use of these strict and loose forms of of uh, interpretation and common law. Um What's interesting about that is he had a kind of an elitist notion in that page. This is the Bramble Bush that you're talking about Llewellyn. Yeah, Llewellyn, like like really like dumb judges oftentimes would use the meat cleaver, and it and so law worked because you get dumb judges kind of just applying things, and then <laughs> but then you get smart judges who use the scalpel. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there is a little bit of elitism in there. And but she describes the whole process as more, much more strategic and political. That at times you use the meat cleaver because you're trying to extend, and at times you use the scalpel because you're trying to limit, and that those are always available. So there's a little bit of kind of critical legal studies. Mm. Uh, running through there could be both i mean it, it could be of course to the degree that there's there are strategies involved one might expect a more thoughtful and discerning judge to to be better at that you know top to bottom than than a, a sort of a, a less discerning judge would be um so it could be that he's got a good point and she's got a separate good point 
uh, it does seem like you can see evidence of that stuff in cases when you take them as a as a group, right? Well, I, I um, think a good, uh, a, a really smart judge who is not committed to a particular kind of judicial ethic, which would preclude this, would be better both at using the meat cleaver and the scalpel. Right. And well, there you go. Let's 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 go on. But what, I want to give we, an example just in terms yeah, absolutely. of because because uh, I think people um, a bunch of our, our listeners who, who might be law students, recent law students mm-hmm. um, or even current law students. They probably encountered this case that you uh, that I know you and I both teach in different circumstances and have taught many times. Uh, International News Service against Associated Press. Right. Yeah. And uh, this is INS this, versus AP. Correct. Uh, the so-called hot news misappropriation case. And the majority says uh, a few times. Uh, you can't reap where you haven't sown or you should reap where you have sown and not elsewhere, right? It's a sort of, not only is it a general principle, it's po- positively scriptural in, in its uh, sort of uh, tone. And right? they embed it in kind of a business ethics. Right. Right. But it's got this King James Bible feel to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as a source of a moral principle. And the court uses that principle to, to come up with this thing, this result and an explanation for a result that doesn't fit within traditional unfair competition cases, doesn't fit within other cases uh, that have been established to date. It's precisely that it not fitting well it, that drives Brandeis's dissent. The, that, and Holmes's concurrence. Yeah, he comes up with a totally concurrence. different... Yeah, he, but, but a similar kind of principle, right? That you shouldn't be able to palm off as yours what is not yours. Yeah, the, it, the injuries to the consumer. It's not a just generalized, unethical... Injury yes. to you know, and yeah. and and the what I think distinguishes the Holmes approach from the majority's approach, uh, which I feel bad. I think it's Rufus Peckham who wrote it, although I could be wrong about that. Uh, we've le- we're leaving the majority opinion unnamed, right? We've got Holmes, we've got Brandeis. I think it's Peckham. Yeah. In any event, um, the, the the Holmes thing at least has the advantage of saying, yeah, there's this thing called palming off. There's reverse palming off. I can fit it within a rubric that's pretty well established. The, the majority really is kind of off on a bit of a frolic and detour and <laughs> uses that general principle language to, to motivate it, right? But it's, and it, then future courts yeah. have to decide what to do, right? So in a future court – But it's like know, these airplane overflight cases where – so they, they were dealing with what they thought was a, a hugely disruptive new kind of problem which could destroy an important public industry. You're talking about the ad sealum rule and the – Right. This is where, where US against when Cosby, airplanes first come around yeah. and people have to – and suddenly people say, wait a minute. You're flying over my property I own from I heaven written. to hell under yeah. traditional property rules. So you have to pay me to cross over my land. And, and for transaction cost reasons, of course, that's unworkable. Right. And so something has to change. And, and a number of courts just said, well, there's no ad sewellum doctrine. And you know they did some other things. But um, so, but, but like that case, you know, it, it lands in a, in a court under traditional doctrine and – and it looks like maybe there is a new kind of kind of technology or practice here which could be disruptive of something which is hugely important, which is how people get the news, right? And right. whether there will continue to be news. Correct. And the And so it's not unexpected that a court would kind of reach out to to use the meat cleaver in that case or to use the hammer uh, and just hammer home <laughs> like this principle that you're talking about, right? Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, and the court, the majority, of course, says some other things too that are in, in a more detailed sense about the fact that uh, this form of imitation could be, uh, it, we, we need to be on our guard against a form of imitative competition that, that could destroy the very market itself in which competition is taking place. And so, the, yes, they do say, but w- what I think is 
what connects to the walled discussion is the fact that you've got this big principle, don't reap where you haven't sown. And, and that's a thing that a future case, right, could take that quote, that sort of this, it's got this great soundbite in it. And you could take that soundbite and you could use it to drive a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah. Precisely the opposite has happened, of course, is that it, in New York State is virtually the only body of law, New York State judge-made law, that has a viable hot news misappropriation doctrine. Everyone else has limited it to its facts by avoiding that language mm-hmm. and just talking about, well, it's this, this newswire thing and da 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 um, And a huge amount of that limiting work was done by uh, Second Circuit judges, uh, learned hand principal among them, although not only him. And, uh, and so you, you've, got, you've got a very live example for people who could be young lawyers who've read, read that case not too long ago, and it might have stuck in their mind that don't reap where you haven't sown. Uh, and it's just the kind of dynamic she's describing. Jeer Darcy whining there? Yes, because canines love hot news. She mentioned something that I know that if you were a judge would totally irritate you. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, the habit of some judges of making stylistic edits, right? So, so the, the first part is kind of talking about how judges will negotiate and bargain through drafts to try to get the doctrine that they want talked about and the doctrine they don't want talked about not talked about, right? But and, then, and of course, also, in the way they want to do it. As well. But also, in in you know, when they send drafts back and forth, there some judges might decide, hey, I can make this read better, and and that's usually not welcome. <laughs> As she, as she describes it, you know, it's like. Do, do you know anyone who wouldn't be a little bit annoyed if if that's if if a judge said, uh, "I, you know, happy to join your opinion." Well, certainly, what would be? Well, you describe it. What would be the most obnoxious way for one appellate judge to say to another appellate judge, uh, "I, I, I would like these changes in the way that the thing is written." Mm. What describe it? What What do you think would be the most irritating way to do that? If your changes are about about style of presentation and not about legal doctrine. Oh, well, the most irritating ones are going to be suggestions for grammatical or style changes, which make the thing grammatically wrong in ways that the person suggesting it did not appreciate. <laughs> that would be really annoying. And that that happens, you yeah. know, uh, not but just on courts, but I guess what I was elsewhere. asking about, this is the, the, the folly of, um, of the Socratic method in teaching. Um, what I was asking about, but that you didn't say, um, was uh, in response, um, it, conditional. That, in other words, like, I, I'll join if you make right. these changes. And where, where the changes you're asking for are about style. That would be, I would think, that would be wildly inflammatory. She doesn't mention it, but it would seem to be more appropriate in a per curiam or unsigned opinion where, because if if there's a per curiam, then... So if it's not a procurement, if you're just signing on to someone's opinion, it's yeah. clear from the opinion that's what's occurring because it'll be, you know, this right. is, you know, that your name wall, is not chief the author, judge, I'm name. the author. And Correct. then if I make some suggestions, uh, you know, I, all I'm doing is signing on to the opinion. Right. So the, the warrant for asking for changes of voice or of, uh, you know, to make it read better is, um, is, is weak, it seems to me, uh, in the case of a, of a signed opinion mm. that you're joining. Right. Uh, what was I going to say about this, though, that... Um, um, can't remember. I had another comment about this, about the, the annoyance of stylistic changes. There are some fun, especially like seeing her talk about, uh, the degree to which judges do or don't ask each other to change citations. 
mm-hmm. um, to other cases. Yeah, um, that's what that's what I was talking about earlier. The yeah. shaping of the this is the not mentioning cases in order right. to push back against the Supreme Court or against your court's own precedent. And in the Supreme Court variant, um, I, I, ha- I, I have seen discussion in the last few years of instances where justices were very much uh, in, the, in the memo traffic back and forth as an opinion was in draft and getting developed um, on, and circulated in, within the court. Um, we're very much asking one another to take out citations to certain cases. Hmm. As being, you know, yeah. a, unhelpful, potentially misleading, not really the best suggestion to make, et cetera, et cetera. So the people may dismiss citations as uh, sort of window dressing or clerk work product or whatever, whatever. But but the justices do engage, uh, obviously not in every with every site in every case. One imagines so, I didn't I didn't clerk there, so I don't know firsthand. Um, but. Uh, but to say they don't ever care, that would be also uh, an equally wild overstatement. So then she goes into talking about personal relationships, although I think the stylistic point could have comfortably fit within there. And uh, between um, uh, you know, so, so the circuit court judges attitude about a case and writing may change depending on who the district judge is. Yes. Right. Whether the district judge is known to be maybe not so bright or, ha- or particularly or a hothead or whatever else it is or very careful yeah and because you get the the record coming up you get the arguments and and you know you're feeling about whether something went wrong because after all an appeal is a basically an attack on what the district judge did right, right. it's uh it's really a suit against the district judge in did some this ways this ring true to you this in terms of your clerkship experience i i can remember quite quite vividly this happening almost always in the positive direction that um, yeah, I don't think I want to say. Oh, okay. Just because, you know, there's still clerk's confidence kind of thing. And, and so I'm not going to talk about anything that happened in chambers or my year. But other, other than to say that, um, um, that, that it, it does ring true that you would, that, you know, that because you have this kind of cold record and our feelings about cases and our understanding of whether something unjust went, you know, it, it could turn on. You're looking for like what actually happened, and and yeah. um, and it's well, a testament yeah, to how small the judiciary is that that those sorts of um, relationships and repeat experiences can accrue, um, both positively and negatively. Yeah, like like with um, any workplace. I mean, so right. th- I, th- I thought there was a more general point here about about trust. I mean, and people want to. You know, law is a rule guided system, and but it doesn't really work without kind of trust and a lot of other kind of human things which go unsaid, kind of filling in the joints. Right. And like any workplace, if you know if you're relying on someone else's work, their reputation or your attitude toward their prior work is going to affect maybe how much you trust what you get and how much of that you may redo or look right. at. And so that does ring true to me that that would be the way it would work in a lot of courts, right? That um, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if I said on this show, but one of the ways you can define bias and one of the ways you can catch bias in yourself is when you, when you see something like on Twitter, let's say, right. And someone posts something, which is like an assertion about politics or something like that. Um, and, but they involve kind of empirical things that you may not know the answer to. For some things, we just kind of accept them because they reinforce our attitudes. And for others, like we, even if we can't reject them, we like think, well, I'm going to look more into that. It's that initial impulse to kind of Google to figure out whether something is true mm. or just to say, ah, I'll hit like, right? <laughs> right. It's that, 
that <clears throat> distinction, like that's that's where bias lives, and um, and so uh, when it comes to reputations and economies of trust within an institution, you know, maybe it's not bias anymore. Maybe it's like hunches and heuristics based on you know past experience. Maybe maybe it is outright bias in some some circumstances. But I found it was in- interesting that she was kind of talking about this, and it probably also factors into kind of going into a panel with other judges, knowing their reputations, knowing kind of what you, I could, I could see that affecting your preparation for the case, what, you know, your negotiating position. Um, But other than district judges, she also talks about relationships with counsel, like trust of counsel uh, representing uh, the parties in front of you. And what, what do you think about that? Well, a a a particular manifestation. Because in some ways it shouldn't, right? And, and, but you know expectations <clears throat> so there's a variety of ways that expectations could could come into play the one that, that that i was reminded of when i was reading that was i i i did see um the, it, it was in the nature of the federal circuit's work that it 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 hears from uh lawyers who are representing the united states in various ways mm-hmm. pr- pretty frequently um from you know agencies or doj divisions or whatever and I think the lawyers for the United States were, were were held to a higher standard in the sense of that when there was something that was a little out of kilter, like a problem in a brief or a, a little bit of a s- slip in statement at the lectern or what have you, right? Um, they got it in a way. <laughs> they got some blowback in a way that private lawyers didn't right. for the same behavior uh, because the judges were had a higher expectation and were willing to state that and, and wanted to state that during right. oral argument for when it was go- U.S. government And lawyers. as a co-equal branch of government, there's maybe that license to be um, kind of critical of work product. And, yeah. and many of them, I think, ha- had that in their own backgrounds themselves, right? Many of the right. federal circuit judges actually had been lawyers at the Justice Department, for example, right. a number of them at least. And and that made them even, you know, it was another way to think about the level of expectation. and that Whereas you'd be loath to criticize a private lawyer whose practice you're not familiar with, whose life situation it's hard. Like she mentions in here, being reluctant to yeah. to point out a lawyer's incompetence unless it rose to a truly egregious well, level. Well, certainly in the written opinion, right? And I was just referencing oral argument, yeah, not, yeah. not the written opinion, but... Um, but yeah, you might be more reticent if from, for a lack of understanding, you might, you might, it might just have a different valence of sort of like, look, you, when you're a lawyer rep- speaking on behalf of the United States, you have a, you, there's a public facet to what you're doing mm-hmm. that, um, that calls for a higher standard of conduct. She talks about clerks mm. and the fact that it, the, the diversity of practices that judges have with respect to writing and and one of the elements here is just how much writing judges have to do uh, mm. kind of continuously yeah. and how she she averts to kind of how the um there are there are kind of natural rhythms that writers might have i mean you know how much when you want to say how much you have to say there are times when we might be very productive and other times where um you know w- where we would have less to say or or we need a break or you know our brains work in funny ways when it comes to writing it's yeah. not like a lot of other jobs and but the judiciary doesn't allow for it 
And so she says she finds herself like plagiarizing or falling into these patterns. So the writing, right. basically, you know, if you force yourself to write a certain amount each day, that works for some writers and um, yeah. she refers to some, but f- for many, it does not. For many great writers, it does not. And if you force them to do that, they would be worse because yeah. of it. Uh, and the, and it sort of, uh, another thing she mentions is the notion of beat reporters that in a way they have to, right. like they have to write on a, on a, a deadline on a regular basis. But of course, they, they're just trying to relate new facts that come from a new story. Um, but columnists it, are a little bit different and maybe you can think, you know, some, some online writers today who are meant to talk about ideas on a regular basis. It, yeah. it seems like really, seems like tough work and they are yes. on, a, on a deadline and it has to be high quality. And, yep. and, and I think appellate judges and um, for trial judges, I'm sure uh, it's, it, it's true as well, perhaps to a different degree, but, but for appellate judges, this, this writing pressure and in, in that sense, they are beat reporters, but it's, mm-hmm. they, they're not just a who, what, where, when. They've got a, of course, there are, f- a, there are a, a fact portion of the opinion, which she talks about yeah. at some length, but there's also all this legal analysis. You've just got to get it done. It's about reason. You have to give reasons. It yeah. involves, you know, appreciating theory. It involves like taking account of your colleagues' views. And so here, like she talks about how clerks may, in many cases, write the first drafts of opinions. Some judges will often say good enough. Other judges will go through layers and layers of rewrites until, you know, what at the end, you know, it's like, okay, take a first pass at this, but what comes out in the end through editing is really the judge's own. Right. Other judges just kind of write their own opinions um, uh, from the beginning and maybe ask the clerks to take a look at it. And she's kind of like skeptical of that. She says, maybe there are a few geniuses who do that well, but for most judges, I don't see that that actually improves anything, even given the fact that clerks are green in, in, you know, that they, they have no, oftentimes very little life experience, but very, certainly very little legal experience. And, and it, it relates to the vision. point about the writing output and the having to write all the time. Like if you do have someone else doing your first drafts, in a way, you're keeping yourself fresher for the stuff that you, that you do. Right. Right. You're, because someone else is helping do some of the laboring with the more mundane parts of it if they're good and you get something on the page which is a place to start it can be you know i mean everybody knows the hardest thing is getting going right yeah. and yeah the, especially the page if you, is the worst right and and i imagine you know for federal judges you, they're probably un, un disproportionately perfectionist and being a perfectionist is really makes it really hard because the thing that the ideas in your head are so much better than anything that comes out when you put um fingers to keyboard that it can make it really hard to get yeah. going so um, having a clerk take a first cut can be enormously helpful, but I don't know. What else do you want to talk about? That was a lot of it. I mean, you well, know. I've only gotten through the first basically half of it. She talks about standards of review. Yeah, I didn't find that particularly. Um, well, I mean, I read it. Yeah, but it, I found it to be really fascinating. The standards of yeah. review stuff. Wow. Yeah, because I, I found it quite well, tedious. Well, because well, there's a lot of. Blo- <laughs> There's a lot of block quoting and talking about cases, and, and she's she rides the line at points in here of of relitigating controversies in her own court, but mm. but it's very self conscious about that, and will right. say, you know, I don't, I'm not relitigating this, I'm, but here's an example of how um, you could do, you do this way or that way, and and so w- one of the things she talks about with standards of review, which are the the standards by which a court will, um, uh, uh, well, review what the district cut co- district court did below. Um, she talks about how. 
it's almost like this. Um, you remember talking with me about um, Duncan Kennedy's stages of uh, public-private decline? I forget mm. the name of the, the paper. This Long is, time ago. So yeah. So critical legal theorists, right? One one of the moves of the critical legal theorists is to note that whatever legal standard you have, event, you know, if it's not immediately obvious that it's indeterminate, will be rendered clearly indeterminate over time through litigation. Um, so rather than litigating towards certainty of application, you 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 basically uh, um, uh, remove all power from the standard itself, returning power to judges to do um, to act in the interest of the powerful. If you're to take the crit uh, example, so so she has a. And there's I, also a, can yeah. I just before you so so there's um the uh, versions of that point like there's a Carol Rose paper, crystals and mud and property. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's called. Um, you mentioned then, that at least four times on this podcast. Really? Yeah. Um, and then there's. Um, I know you love that piece. It's just. And well, why, just why, why, we need to talk about that one too. And the obviously. second Kennedy point, it's like it's a version of the same point, right? Um, the the efficiency of the common law hypothesis. It's yeah. another version of the same point that that you know wherever the law is right now, the one one dynamic that's going to be happening is people are going to be drawn toward the places where there are still good arguments on both sides. Yeah. And that is exerts a pressure. Um, on these other dimensions that you're describing. Well, but so she describes a process by which say there's a standard of, um, of only overturning lower court on truly exceptional grounds or something like that. And so there's a way of phrasing the standard where you do some citations to earlier cases where, right. where, you, where you, you describe the standard as very much deferring to courts below, right? right? And you emphasize that deferring language over and over and then finally say, well, obviously this is not that case, right? This, you know, uh, af- after you go through all of the, the different formulations of leave what they did alone, right? You get to the conclusion we should leave what they did alone. But then over time, maybe there's another, you know, maybe there's a case which really falls outside of it. And so there's some language that even though this case, uh, 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 even though this standard requires rather extreme deference to district courts, we cannot close our eyes to reality, right? Where you can't (laughs) take a blinkered approach to it. And so eventually you get little sentences like that, little language like that. And so there get so to be two ways of describing the standard. The very same standard. Right. She said a winning way and a losing way, yeah. and you get to choose between them. Of course. And that's where every standard of review can develop that construction. It's a very that, critical legal studies point. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I think it's all- I'm avoiding saying what you said and that um, this was for my modern American legal theory. This is uh, – we talked about this, this pa- Duncan Kennedy paper and recording for that class. Oh, okay. And you used the word critty. And I'm avoiding it because I hate it. I just, it, it's, I don't know. The, the, the adjective critty? Yeah, because I, I hear it a lot because I teach the class and I uh, still use that recording. Oh, shoot. So you've already forgotten about it. Yeah, definitely and, forgot but about you, it. But you dropped that one on me and I have to hear it every year. Mm, sorry. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, not, it's not merely a, a crit move or critical legal studies move. I, why did I say merely? It, it's not solely that uh, because... It's I I do think it's part of this this process of a decision in time that you that that disputants are going to focus on the places where there's hay to be made and where there's still a fight to be had. And that's going to bring out the degree to which a thing is susceptible of two different approaches. Um, I've recently been teaching this um, the, the emergence of, of a particular mode of analysis in in the section one of the Sherman Act and the in between the illegality per se and the full rule of reason this third thing emerges called the quick look doctrine um so when he, it, that's, that's where you hit space bar 
<laughs> I guess, yeah. Oh. Huh. Uh, and use Quick Look, right? Hmm. Yeah. No. Never mind. Oh, but, we're doing that Apple. So, so yeah. This the, is this, yeah, is, this, is, this yeah. is for the nerds. It's okay. okay. Keep going, um, Joe. I didn't know that was called Quick Look, but it used to be a thing called Quicksilver. Yeah, I did. I was. I never got. That's I the kind of thing I thought. I, I thought I should be a Quicksilver person, but I never got into it. I liked it. But Quick Look was one of those things, like Expose. You remember when you could first do Expose and make the windows mm. separate? Um, right. Anywho, was, anyway. this thing called the Quick Look. Those are the best things ever. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> quick Look analysis emerges in between the other two, and it's uh, it's it's very clear. That it is the product of an instability inhering in these polar opposites and the constant pressure of litigants to try to develop an additional way to address the problem, right? So you can count on certain things happening. And I I suppose that's a critical – it could be a critical legal studies insight, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think other people could have the insight too, even if they don't sign up to a lot of things that crits might sign up for. I think I've got two more things okay, that cool. I flagged. Let's do it. I don't know. What do you, would, is that okay with you? Yeah, two more things. Well, sounds great. One was about dicta. No, we must have five. Did you, did you, did you follow this discussion on dicta and the way I mean, that I read it? What, is, what oh. about it leapt out at you that you would like to mention? Um, let, me, let, me just read this, let me just read this quote and see. Because you, know, you know what people love in podcasts? It could send me into a, into a rage. You realize that, right? Oh, really? I could just fly into a rage. Let's find out. Am I going to hulk out here or what? Well, some judges decry dicta in principle. Others defend them on the ground that the reader judge, you know, she uses it as a plural, as one should. A dictum is one unit of mm-hmm. of, yes. of many dicta. Dicta is a plural term. Obiter dicta. Hmm. What is a dictum? Is it one word? <laughs> this is a problem, it's, right? There's no gotta, unit, right? It's a... Mm, exactly. It's um, sort of a semantic unit. And if it's a plural noun, should you use the singular verb? Right, so I, I I don't know. Okay, you, you see what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, it's a problem. Um, uh, do you see people complaining about? Does it have more or f- like? Does it get more or what is it? The many and here's more where my brain went. I went the... to attorneys general, obviously. Hmm? Cool. I went to, I went to attorneys general, obviously. Yeah, because um, that's another one of these weird things. Um, and then to solicitor general, and solicitor general. general. And then how some people are really irritated at the habit of courts of, of referring to the solicitor general as general, mm. even though general is kind of an adjective modifying solicitor, right? right? Exactly. And so yeah. the whole thing is like – It's not a three-star where you're like – Right. Yeah. So in some ways like the whole – like referring to them that way re- reveal like, – like un, unselfconsciously reveals the ridiculousness of the whole proceeding in a way. <laughs> <laughs> right? The, it, it's like – when, once you do it wrong, it's like the whole formality becomes a little bit laughable. Anyway, so back yeah. to uh, so I mean, let me, everyone let me suddenly that. realizes they're in the middle of the Pirates of Penzance or some right, version right. thereof, and it right, yeah, feels right. a little bit self conscious. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, let me unwind. You know, back back to where we started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, others defend them on the ground that the reader, judge, or citizen has benefited by a full look at all the considerations that have gone into the decision, even the dead end side trips. Dicta may be necessary if the author wants to be candid in revealing that it is a close case. And he still has some doubts about which way to go or about the consequences of the way he's chosen. From an educational point of view, discussing rejected theories, speculating on consequences, probing doubts can be of of assist. No editing can be of assistance to peer courts considering the same issue. They can inform a reviewing court and aid litigators by showing which arguments troubled the court most, et cetera, et cetera. And 
So, you know, I know there've been so many papers on this and probably no one wants me to ask this question, but like, you know, the question is like, is basically what is dicta, but like, what is the opposite of that? What is unadorned reason? What like, is, what, is the, what is it? What is the, like, she says, like, one reason to go into dicta might be to kind of show, you know, be candid about, like, doubts and consequences and all of these other things. But, like, aren't those part of the reason? Like, how do you know the difference? We, we, we haven't done a show about dicta, have we? I don't think we have. We've done a lot of shows about, like, logic and reason. and Yeah. But this distinction, uh, we mentioned earlier in the show how this... Um, over over so-called overruling of Korematsu in the in the um, Muslim ban cases mm-hmm. may have been dicta. So I think there was a generation of lawyers and a generation of law professors in the past that got a lot of mileage out of the the distinction between those things that are necessary to the decision, necessary right. to the holding, and those things that are not right. And using the, that discussion as a way to explore the, the, how to um, draw support from a case or how to distinguish a case away. Right. Uh, and I think in the context of that, learning about that process of drawing support from a case or distinguishing a case away, that talking about the things that are closer or further away from the core of what's happening in the case these yeah. are the core facts that seem to See, make this, a difference. This, uh, this, this is the core issue. Yeah. Th- this just recapitulates the um, uh, kind of the legal realist attack on what reason is within law. So either you are more formalist, in which case this idea of what's necessary is more, it takes a more logical or historical form or something like that. Um, or you reject it completely and you go like hyper legal realism or, or critical legal studies. And so this is just garbage. Like, you know, the dicta is what, you know, you know, it, the more dicta you have, the more we understand why someone did what they did. You see a little bit of this in, in Fuller's Spelunkian Explorer's piece, right? With mm. people, people trapped in the cave where there's like one judge who's saying, I heard from my um, from my wife heard from like the secretary's like husband of the president that he's not going to pardon these, you know, this kind of stuff. And, right. and he writes that in the opinion like that. It forms part of the reason for that judge. But yes. you would never write that. Right. Um, no, there's so, a middle or a middle ground, which I was going to say is the heart ground of like the core and the penumbra yeah. and then outside the penumbra. Right. And just because it's a middle ground doesn't mean it's right. Of course. And <laughs> uh, I, I think to, a, to someone of your or my generation of law professor or, or legal scholar or, and probably judge, since people our age are now many federal judges, um, I, I don't think either that uh, either a hyper formalist or a hyper realist a- approach to mm-hmm. the discussion about dicta and holding is, is particularly appealing. Yeah. Um, cause it, it sounds kind of anti-pragmatic. You mean anti-pragmatic? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, she says elsewhere that dicta, of course, are often an essential part of the author's storytelling effort. You know, show, and this part of this is about, you know, why we write like you are, yeah. we haven't really talked about all the justifications, no, you guess, but word- part of it is like justifying to the people that you are. You know, it's part of the court's legitimacy and telling a story, which is compelling as part of that effort. Yeah. For the litigants, for the for the general public, you know, I think the. um, I don't think I don't think any judge sets out to fill a lot of paragraphs saying a bunch of things they don't think they need to say to to 
help the reader understand why they decide as they do. Mm-hmm. So if a if another judge is is sort of dismissing as dicta a bunch of things that are said, right? I mean that's that I suppose that's that person's prerogative. But the but all the time pressure she describes are all the reason anyone would, in the world you'd need to know that the judges are not saying a bunch of stuff they don't think is important. They and, say the things they think are important, and they don't say the things they don't think are important. Interesting, you say that. Her conclusion is. The philosophy of legal realists was that judges reason backwards from result to rationale, selecting rules and facts to fit like a preordained pattern. In appellate courts, it doesn't happen quite like that. There are judges of other persuasions to break the momentum. There are precedents galore that must be acknowledged. There's a judge's own sense, blah, blah, blah. You, you see that yeah. you kind of like, you can't get away with it in a way. Am I, you're looking at me puzzled. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I was just saying, like, you know, she, that's, she had this, like, it was strange to see the reference to legal realists in the, at, in the conclusion, right? When really the whole paper is kind of infused with, like, that, like, it, I, I won't say advancing that, the mission of legal realists, but, like, explaining, like, okay, we don't know what, what the practice of law is really like, and it, it is not unbridled choice. It is not um, uh, totally constrained. Like, we're not all in our, in our chambers solving mathematics problems and comparing answers, right? We are... We are part of an. Uh, we we are an institution made of people who have different values and views and standards of decorum and views about even the joint project that we have. Right. Yes. That it involves lots of negotiation, etc. Let me do one more thing. Get one more issue. Cool. Um. She has this in the section style and personality, um, and talking about how sometimes judges write in order to um make a, a topic more volatile, like to maybe key into the culture wars or something like that in order to draw attention to something. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, or, or other times, they tamp down by taking something which might be like very controversial, might get in the news, might get taken up by the Supreme Court mm. and describing and trying to drain the blood from it and talk mm. about it in a very workmanlike way. Right. And she describes doing that with uh, the White House attempt to modify the gag rule against federally funded prenatal health clinics providing information or advice on abortion. Right. And she talked about writing opinion where it was um, on procedural grounds. Um, And here's what she says. The opinion was written in the same matter of fact style as if it were talking about ball bearings or emission standards. Which sounds like, you know, oh, well, those are not highly charged issues. What I find kind of interesting is that um, abortion is obviously still one of the major um, dividing points in the culture wars. Emission standards are unbelievably consequential compared to <laughs> compared to ball bearings and and I would say you know in terms of health and deaths no matter what your view about the status of a fetus air quality standards have saved an enormous number of lives mm, that's a good point and um and improved the quality of many 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 more it's like one of the clearest public policy wins uh the clean air act is just you know, but unbelievably successful, and and knowing nothing about ball bearings other than the fact that, uh, you know, no ball bearings are boring. You That's okay. <laughs> no, you no, I'm, you no, I, I'm joking. I, I saw Fletch. For, I saw Fletch. <laughs> uh, I'm not speaking about a, a recollection I have of Fletch. I'm mm. just making the point that if you're talking about it in the context of machine, some machine safety standard, right? That probably also could save a lot of lives. Of course, there could be. Downsides to both rules probably as well. Maybe uh, you, you might make the argument that, that, um, that an emission standard that reduces um, harmful things in the air um, doesn't have a downside. 
but oh well everything has trade-offs there you go right so so to the degree that uh, she's making a common sense distinction between the sort of the the temperature around an issue in the culture war yeah. which is a common sense thing we can all understand but on the other hand the all three are things that involve trade-offs yeah because because does, doesn't everything well you don't believe in win 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 like a, in a michael scott kind of way I don't. I believe in win, 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 win. Oh, okay. Not win, 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 win. No. Hmm. Wince, win, 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 win. <laughs> Getting punchy, I guess. Yes. It's about time to wrap up, don't you think? It's a great piece. Here yeah. we are 25 years later, 24 years later, um, looking back at this piece. I, you know. I, I, think it's, I think it well describes the judicial culture today. My, my sense is that it does. But again, I, you know, it's been, since I clerked, it's been 16 years. Um, Longer for me. 17. This paper is right in the middle of my clerkship. 95. Yeah. yeah. So like this is right the heartland. The this is this is what judging is to Joe. <laughs> no, I didn't clerk on the DC circuit. Well, but still, you know, this is, it captures the sense of the times, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, it's certainly, and, and in places, and I, I didn't mention them all, she talks about how things have changed, like I said at the beginning of the show. And, and uh, so what, in 50 years, will some, of the, will some of these practices be seen as like um, way beyond the pale, like a judge should not do that? Um, ju- you know, I can't believe they ever did it like that. Will it be, I can't believe they thought that this was in uh, that there was any ethical problem with this whatsoever and of course it's all you know i don't know some of what she talks about in terms of unpublished opinions and the citability of unpublished those things have already changed there the there was a a sort of surge of concern about the proliferation of sort of quote non-precedential yeah uh, i remember when that happened because there were some blog posts about that when i was uh, when i was clerking around 2002 and it it got to be a, a cause celebre of a few people that hey, there are these unsigned. There, there are these um, summary orders, basically non-presidential opinions. Okay, and, you you mentioning a few different things. So there's uh, there's one line summary affirmances, uh, which are just there are no opinions. It's just she's talking about non-presidential opinions. Yeah, that's a separate thing. Yeah, and uh, so summary order could just be a line item on a docket of you know it was summarily affirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it generates an opinion that is not presidential, mm-hmm. um, that was the thing that had generated. Oh, and, and the federal and rules the, of appellate procedure were changed in the Second Circuit. We called sum- summary orders were uh, were opinions that had no presidential value. Ah, okay. Um, and, and that category has been. Uh, eliminated yeah that's i think that's regrettable but we can talk about that another time i i know like it's an easy thing to say hey there shouldn't be these opinions which have no precedential value but i think giving courts the ability to manage the their precedent and and of course they can be criticized for doing it badly but when all the court is doing is applying its own existing law in a routine way that doesn't create new information making that thing non-citable kind of you know, it, it, it manages it. Let's say it gardens the corpus. It would be interesting to talk about it in a future episode. I was, uh, because there was a lot of interesting stuff in what you just said. I, I was, I was making a slightly different observation, which this is, is always the case. I say something simply, and it's the wrong thing. And I simply I that it. there's been change, right? Even for, you yeah. were saying we look back and would there be change? There's already been yes. change. A thing she talked about is already not the case anymore. And, and, and what I'm saying is, um, I recognize that. 
and it's already a bad change. And so that just is further <laughs> cements my, my the, the total change in my attitude toward the world since 2016 that um, mm. things will continue to get worse. Okay. My sense is it's actually a change for the better that there are uh, no longer these Ooh. things called unsightable. We should talk about this because we're, we, we're going to disagree about this. Um, I think we're going to fight about this. Okay. This will be more fun than the scooter thing. In future. We're yeah, going to do yeah, it. Yeah. We're not going to do it right now. Yeah. Because people are already bored. They've already turned us off. Long ago. Yeah. Several episodes ago. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's been fun. Hit, hit send. I, I had hit something. stop and then hit send. Uh, uh, all right. All right. All right. Bye, everybody.